Welcome to the De-School Yourself podcast, healing the 15,000-hour infliction of public school. Hosted by Zach Slayback and Jeff Till. This installment is called Self-Esteem and Education with Brett Vinat. The job of schools is to help to prepare children for survival as independent human beings in the world. Now, um, in the world, you're not going to get a medal just for showing up. You're going to have to produce something. You're going to have to deliver. So it's a real crime committed against children when you give everybody in the soccer team uh, the identical reward at the end of the game. So you're all winners. They're not stupid. They know most of them are not winners. So there's even a message of contempt implicit in that kind of deception. It's not in the service of rational self-esteem. In this episode, Zach and I bring on Brett Vinat of the School Sucks Project. You can find him at schoolsucksproject.com. There you can find his excellent podcast, which has almost 500 episodes, where he promotes home education, critical thinking, peaceful parenting, personal development, and better communication strategies. I took that right from his intro and his website. In my opinion, he is one of the brightest minds in this entire line of thought as far as reversing the effects of schooling and making the world a better place despite schooling. And his body of work is absolutely amazing. I totally recommend checking it out. I've listened to every single episode he's ever recorded and have loved them all. So I'm delighted to welcome Brett Vinat. Thus far, Jeff and I have talked considerably about the practical aspects of how school makes it really difficult for you to actually act as an effective person in the world around you. It makes it difficult for you to interact with other people, other people, whether they are people who are outside of your zip code and thus outside of your socioeconomic background, other people, if they're outside of your age range, uh, it's very difficult for people when they get into the workforce, for example, to cope with having a boss who is younger than them or just dealing with people who are more than, say, a couple years removed from them in either direction. Mm-hmm. It's difficult for them to conceive of what being effective in the workplace is. One of the things that he and I talked about uh, considerably, and you and I have talked about as well, Brett, is how difficult it is for young people to understand that work is not school (laughs) and that even in workplaces that are very much like school, you don't get a final exam at the end of the day that determines whether or not you move to the next level of the game. But one of the issues, and I say one of the issues, but it's actually a, a huge treasure trove of issues that's dancing around here is that these all are actually effects of not having a proper relationship to one's own self and the effects that school has with that. So you've talked considerably about this on your own show. Can you give some of your thoughts on how to reverse that process or what the effects are of that process first on a young person and then an adult who comes from that young person? Well, sure. I mean, I think that the whole schooling process, and this extends right through higher education for most people, often robs people of the opportunity or the very ability to make, you know, smart, uh, well thought out, forward looking decisions about what professional life even means. You know, I, I think that 
some of the practices that are left really underdeveloped by the entire schooling process that are really a central, uh, essential attributes of finding your way in life, of finding meaning, uh, finding fulfillment. And all of that doesn't have to be done through some entrepreneurial venture. It can certainly be done through uh, the right career. But those are things like, you know, exercise of volition, embracing and asserting individuality, paying attention to self, and letting intrinsic motivation and enthusiasm be a guide along that process. And as I'm sure you guys have covered in this series, uh, society doesn't really have room for this on, on a mass scale, at least how it's existed since the Industrial Revolution. And obviously that has dictated much of what the work world is, much of what work environments are. School fits people for society. It historically has. It certainly makes good on the promise to prepare young people for uh, citizenship. And it has done this by continuously but subtly teaching the, the three lessons that I know you guys already mentioned, which I summarized as obedience, conformity, and apathy. And, you know, I've tried to, to move away. I, I've studied a lot of the uh, social justice conflicts on my show in, in the recent months, and I'm, I'm, I'm rethinking the whole motif of uh, trying to position myself as the enlightened, beneficent, concerned uh, justice seeker who intervenes and speaks on behalf of the, the supposedly downtrodden and, and, and oppressed, say, look what's been done to you. It's a very, it's a very popular setup in, in media and in movements to basically say, here are your rocks, here's who to throw them at, and uh, gratification awaits uh, at the other end of that process. But I'm much more interested in the work, uh, through the work that I do, in empowering young people instead of leaving them in this place where they see themselves as victims of school. And I, I feel like most people go through a good chunk of their lives feeling that victimization, but never really realizing what the source of it is mm -hmm. um, or, or never really understanding how um, what was sacrificed or what opportunities were lost through the schooling process and how those things continue to play out uh, in, in the rest of life. So I've really tried to, you know, make uh, give people this opportunity to engage in a reevaluation of the, of the school process, really wherever they are in life, to look at those lessons they were taught and to basically uh, evaluate how they've continued to have you know a deleterious effect as life goes on. With the the victimhood, so it, to, to some degree in in our deschooling theme, we do sort of want people to recognize that they were sort of victimized by the school sure. process. And that there are after effects and that the apathy, obedience, and conformity live on in their lives as adults. Really, in my own life, in, in many ways as well, I think a lot of us struggle with this. And, you know, you know when we, if we just go through each one in, individually, uh, obedience in school is really about being kind of reflexing, reflexive and unquestioning. And I think that we reach a point, like in our teenage years, where a lot of us say, okay, enough. And this is a very natural process. If anyone in your, uh, uh, who's listening to this has ever heard the work of Dan Siegel and Mindsight, he talks about this very natural process of uh, you know, wanting to leave the nest, wanting to go out and explore the world for oneself. And this happens at a natural age, 13, 14 years old. 
And unfortunately, school is there to crush it uh, in many respects. The, the disobedient teen, uh, and this has you know, turned up in schools uh, with uh, zero tolerance responses and you know, higher fences. And uh, I think most people never really come back from that. Uh, they, they go through that natural process of wanting to assert themselves, of wanting to escape that uh, treatment of being a child, but they're still in a place at 13, 14, 15 years old when those types of behaviors and explorations are natural that is going to push that down. And it seems like mm -hmm. most people, for after that, they never come back from that. They never try to do that uh, later in life. They, they eventually submit uh, or, or they go on a wholly different destructive path, dropping out of school, uh, making really unhealthy life choices, uh, getting involved in uh, getting involved in drugs and alcohol or uh, other high risk behaviors, but a lot of people do just reconform. They mm -hmm. conform very easily, obey very easily through the elementary and middle school process. Middle school is a very very dark time in a person's life, where it <laughs> seems like there's almost no light at the end of the tunnel. But then when we get to this age where we feel like adults ourselves, because nature is telling us that we are, and we try to assert that, and that's crushed, that, that it's, it's kind of like almost a psychological warfare where the captor, I, I know it really isn't this malevolent, but the captor kind of gives the, the captive a glance at what freedom looks like and then shuts the door again. <laughs> yeah. And most people never, it's like a, it, the Batman, what's the Batman movie where he's put in that prison where he can see the daylight and then people try to climb and they watch each other fall to their death. Oh uh, yeah, the, the Dark Knight uh, Dark Knight Rises, I think. Yeah, exactly. So most people attempt to rise <laughs> only <laughs> to fall and you know have their neck snapped by their uh, safety rope and they, they never attempt it again. Yeah. And or, it, or you see them when they graduate from college or from graduate school, then they have no conception of how to actually make their way in the world around them. Mm -hmm. It manifests as a quarter-life crisis. That's one of the things that uh, Jeff and I have discussed on here as well, is that there is this natural desire to get out, and then you get out and you're like, oh, I have been suppressing this for so long, I have no idea what I'm going to do now. With, with obedience also comes like its two ugly stepsisters, which are authority and also dependency and you were you were mm -hmm. talking about how you were you're trying to shift away from people you know looking for something to to have a rock and you know find something to throw it at and we sort of see that a lot with with your recent conversations on your speed in politics about whether it's the social justice warriors or the alt-right as everyone's sort of looking for an authority uh to either blame or to save them uh very little of it seems to be internally focused uh you know, you know, what can I do to be different or what can I do to be better? Yeah. Is that, is that, does that come from school too? Is that part of oh, the school I would mentality? Say so, yeah. I, I would say definitely. I mean, yeah, I, I've rethought these three lessons a, a lot over, especially the course of the last year. And I've asked myself questions like, well, how much of these things are natural and they're, they're really just reinforced by the school process. I mean, we're ob obedient, especially as very young children, uh, to a certain extent to survive. Uh, mm -hmm. We conform uh, throughout most of our lives to certain things because we're we're very tribal uh, and those types of group identities 
uh, certainly without, you know, a conscious assessment of what they are and what they're all about and how important they actually are, uh, especially, you know, considering we don't need to uh, roam around the world in tribes anymore. You know, that that's um, another significant hindrance for people as well. Those types of identity movements are very self-sacrificial. They're removing any need for examination of self. And, and we, I think we do see this in school through cliques where people are maybe trying to assert themselves a little bit. They're trying to assert their identity, but they still want to do it within the safety and the acceptance of a fairly uniform group. And I think that, you know, there, there's a, a revolutionary spirit in the social justice warrior mindset and in the alt-right mindset. They feel like they are rebelling against something but they still want to identify with a group uh, while they do it, because I think there's there's a safety and, and a validation uh, in, in doing that. So, yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, obedience is fairly natural. Conformity is fairly natural. Uh, apathy is also fairly natural because it's the easiest way to be. You know? <laughs> like to, not doing things is easier than than doing things. Mm-hmm. Um but I, I so I think that that would be a really, really essential time if people had to be in school during those formative years of life to, you know, have those natural impulses challenged instead of just made concrete by the school experience. But it seems like school doesn't do that. Uh, school requires all three. Society, to a certain extent, requires all three. Those who want to be the the scientific managers or the the planners or the rulers of society, they seem to require all three. One of the questions that I think we wanted to get at today is uh, about the the de-schooling process or, you know, what what is the answer? What is the remedy for a lot of these subtle lessons that are delivered continuously uh, through the schooling process? And... Uh, one of the most important remedies to what Gatto presents as the seven lessons of school, and I've distilled to those three lessons of school we just talked about, has been um, Nathaniel Brandon's six pillars of self-esteem or practices of self-esteem, some kind of active engagement in a, uh, a process to honor oneself. Uh, after spending 15,000 hours in a system that did not honor uh, that did not honor individual selves uh, at all, you know, and I think uh, Brandon pursued a lot of this work on the topic of self-esteem as his own remedy for the dis what he called the disowned self, which was a product of I, I think school and society, and most importantly for him, and I think this was revealed through a lot of the counseling that he did um, of family. And he described it as this, you know, the disowned self was a, a, a problem of self-alienation mm-hmm. where people are just essentially playing roles that they've unconsciously adopted. And there are other people, whether they're parents or teachers or, good God, college professors, uh, politicians or, or other types of managers, there are people who are happy to author roles for other individuals. So if this, there's this obliviousness to self or disconnection from self that school really fosters uh, for most people throughout the, the entire experience, others are left as sitting ducks to you know, be put into roles 
uh, unconsciously. So I think that um, engaging in an active process that, as Brandon describes in, in The Six Pillars of Self-Esteem, that begins with conscious living, a desire to uh, basically connect to oneself, to integrate different aspects of self, from there you can start to counter some of these destructive lessons that, that school has taught. So just to expand on the three lessons that we talked about um, with some review of uh, Gatto's uh, Seven Lesson School Teacher, obedience really encompasses, I think, three of Gatto's lessons, the, the emotional dependency mm-hmm. um, that, that basically, you know, you're in school, you surrendered to this predestined chain of command that any um, asserting of one's individuality is, is a kind of contradiction in that setting. Um, those who assert individuality make it very difficult for any kind of classification system to exist. So you're really dependent on the authorities for a sense of self, largely. There's also a heavy, this is another one of Gatto's lessons that fits under obedience, an an intellectual dependency Mm -hmm. that denies many aspects of practicing self-esteem, personal responsibility, assertiveness, and the articulation for oneself of some kind of purpose in life. Uh, Curiosity is not important. In, in this place. Only, only, or sorry, uh, curiosity is not important in the school. Only conformity, right? So you are waiting for instructions in both the emotional dependency and the intellectual dependency. You're waiting for instructions. You're waiting for direction uh, from some kind of authority figure. So it's much more subtle than just do what I say or else, which is, I think, how most people think of obedience. Right. Um, the result of these two, uh, emotional dependency and intellectual dependency, is uh, what Gatto describes as a kind of provisional self-esteem. You know, there is no personal practice in school or, or process towards a healthy concept of self. The school basically says, we'll let you know. <laughs> you know, we'll let you know when you're there, unfortunately. And uh, he says in that, in that piece, if you've ever tried to wrestle a kid into line whose parents have convinced him to believe they'll love him in spite of anything, you know how impossible it is to make self-confident spirits conform. Mm. So um, what the obedience lessons of school remove from people is the recognition of the importance, I think in many ways, of self-evaluation and of intrinsic motivation. All motivation is extrinsic. All direction is extrinsic. And the tools are are so explicit in school, you know, whether it's the gold star or the grade or the punishment or the exam, et cetera. Well, there was one one thing that you noted in there that I think is important for us to stress as well throughout this entire conversation, which is that a lot of the tools of obedience and of all these lessons are not necessarily as overt as, you know, a nun hitting you on the knuckles with uh, a ruler, right? It, the solution isn't just putting people in something like a progressive school where, oh, all the kids now work together. There, You still have that socialization aspect or address or philosophy to schooling there, which makes it that these individuals can't develop themselves as individuals. 
And I think there, there, there has to be a kind of subtlety to how all mm-hmm. these, these hidden lessons are delivered, right? I mean, we look at uh, more overt systems of control in the adult world politically, and they always have a finite life. Like, how long is communism really going to last anywhere? How long is fascism really going to last anywhere before? Uh, I, I mean, it, when something is so in your face, uh, eventually it's going to be resisted on, on a mass scale. And I think, well, well, you do see glimpses of that in school. There is, uh, and it'll be interesting to see how this how this changes uh, as you know more school age children can connect outside of school and express grievances about the school process today than was possible when when I was in uh, you know high school many years ago. It'll be interesting to see how school. Uh, generally over time will adjust to that. I don't know if it will, and that will that will also be interesting, but it seems like, uh, by and large, the schools get away with as much as they can and not more when it comes to uh, keeping people in line. And we've seen, we've seen some pretty alarming expansions of that in the last 20 years, and maybe that's, uh, as I've suggested on the show, people are communicating to the schools, oh, we will accept more top-down. We will accept more authority. So the school responds with uh, zero tolerance. From afar, it seems like the the school's role in in all of this is, is accelerating. Uh, mm-hmm. Perhaps uh, corporal, you know, or hitting children is probably less frequent in, in, in the confines of school. But the hours seem to be getting longer, the homework requirements more intensive, uh, you know, the curriculum more, more ironclad. So do, do you think this is going to be reversed at some point? I mean, probably not coming from the school itself uh, or the parents or the government. There, there's almost no institution in this mix that really wants to slow down the school process, it seems. No, I don't think anybody has any incentives to do that. <laughs> One of the problems with parents is um, I read, Gatto wrote somewhere, he wrote this in a couple of places, that most parents don't even want to believe that their child's school is one of the bad schools. Oh yeah. Uh, obviously, I think that if you've surrendered to this reality that your child needs to be in one of these buildings 35 hours a week, you you better have a nice story to tell yourself uh, about what's going on there. And I think that you know, obviously, like with anything there's there's a range of engagement that that parents uh are able to have we do know that more parents um you know attend school board meetings and uh protest uh, about certain things that are that are going on in school but but that's rare by i'm not saying it's not happening but from being on the other side from being inside the schools um that is considered a real nuisance it's done not enough <laughs> That when it is, when it does occur, when a parent does have a complaint or does want an unscheduled meeting with a teacher or an administrator, that person is a pain for for wanting that because most people are most people went through the system uh, themselves, and uh, they kind of go along to get along, and they don't look too closely. And I think maybe subtly or subconsciously, they know if they look closer, they won't like what they see, so they avoid doing that. Yeah, I wonder how much that relates to people's desire to heal themselves from the schooling process, because this this seems to be a very rare idea that the the frustration, that some of the frustration and unhappiness people have 
and perhaps even lack of creativity and uh, other problems are formed by school. So that same attitude probably that keeps people from heal, wanting to heal, desiring to heal themselves is probably the same one that keeps them uh, propagating the system. I'm thinking. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, th this, I think, spreads into all different areas of life. Like there, there's lots of problems in, in like medical training and scientific training. There's a great book by a physicist named Jeff Schmidt called Disciplined Minds. And he talks about how it is basically just the passing of pain from one generation to the next. Like this was done to me when I was in nursing school or when I was in um, a, a residence program as a doctor working 110 hours a week. So it's going to be done to you and I'm going to be in charge of doing it because that helps normalize what was done to me. And uh, I think a lot of parents uh, can really get into that and a lot of teachers can, can really get into that. And if you don't, if you stop and you do that difficult assessment of school as a as a domination system that creates uh, a lot of damage, well, after that, where, where else are you going to look? You mm -hmm. might find other domination uh, systems in society that that you're completely dependent on or that you feel are completely inescapable. And then what are you going to have to look at them, too? So I, I think they're the, the whole go along to get along people accept this or avoid this exploration because they just quietly know they won't like where where it leads and it would be a very very difficult place i mean i think one of the reasons why parents engage in you know teacher meetings and the school board is because they feel like they bought into this idea that they can create change by being involved that they could create some kind of significant shift that would somehow be beneficial to their child. But uh, from all my experience working with parents, I've rarely found, I, I haven't heard many success stories about I mean, that. Even, even on perhaps an even more charitable interpretation for a lot of parents, I, I think that your analysis here is spot on, but how you describe how people think about their schools and their children's schools is the exact same way how people think about their own Congress people, right? Mm -hmm. Like Congress has a worse approval rating than syphilis, yet most Congress people get reelected. That doesn't make sense on the face of it, right? Mm. But it's, oh, it's everybody else's congressman. It's not my congressman. I get the letters in the mail that tell me what my congressman is doing so that I've done my civic duty. I've looked at that. In the same way, the school holds the school board meeting. People maybe show up to it once a year when their kids are in high school or middle school, and they feel like they've done their civic duty. So, I think there's a th this is one of the particular issues with any collectivist institution, is that it's really easy for people's uh, autonomy in that institution to really just meld into the rest of it. Mm, yeah, and that's one of the lessons that the the institution makes sure to makes sure makes sure to instill as well. This whole idea of de-schooling could be wildly unpopular and not necessarily be seen as a, uh, a benefit or a remedy or a savior to, uh, to many people. Do, do you think, Brett, do you think that everybody should de-school themselves? Or are there some people who actually would be happier and less frustrated maintaining their, their school uh, mindset? That's a that's a great question, uh, and I think <laughs> the dodge that we can all do is we're only trying to talk to people who've already put thought into it. I mean, obviously, the reality is that most people will never do this. Most people alive today will never go through this process. 
And I think uh, one of the things that I try to do with my show, I mean, I had very lofty ambitions at the beginning about how many people could be saved from the system or what the future of this, this system will, will be. But I look at it today as more of, you know, this is, this is a way that you can achieve more individual liberty and happiness, you know, through teaching yourself, through knowing yourself and, and through improving yourself. And that's certainly not for everybody. I mean, look around. It seems like there's, um, you know, there's, there's more interest in the whole do it yourself and improve yourself uh, than there once was. But I, I, I think that's it's a great question. And I, I do feel like I'm dodging it by saying it's something that I don't think we really have to worry about because most people will never even ask themselves that question. Uh, do I need to do this? What do you think? Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, th I think there is um, there is sort of like a, it seems to be in like the podcast culture. If you if you listen to oh like Tim Ferriss and uh, other like things that people mm. are looking for ways to sort of break out of. Uh, to, to be nonconformist and to find their identities and to find personal self-improvement. But I don't think they're necessarily uh, dotting it back to what happened to them as children and the, you know, the indoctrination they received from the various institutions. I, I absolutely agree with you. And I think that school uh, factors very little into those conversations on shows like, you know, Tim Ferriss or, you know, Joe Rogan is somebody else who does a lot of uh, self-improvement or even like self-teaching uh, content. But there seems to be a lot of blind spots in that whole um, podcast or even online genre generally about uh, the damaging effects of school. So a lot of people, you know, flirt with new ideas or they, they flirt with new pursuits and often as far as like you know there's there's something bigger in life that needs to be recognized and needs to be addressed and needs to be changed and it often never is because people are not really striking the roots of of the problem which is which i think is a symptom of a schooled society in itself that people aren't really interested in pursuing hard answers um or or difficult uh, problems how um, so on, on School Sucks Project? Uh, you, you know, you started as sort of a uh, examination of school, and then as you started branching out, you you started picking very specific themes, including self esteem. Uh, you know, your uh, obtaining knowledge series, like with Steve Patterson, empathy. Um, all of those are, are very much techniques for deschooling, and mm -hmm. so that, was that was that very intentional? And and do you have um, like a vision for what a complete tool set is for deschooling, or even or maybe just an impartial one. I guess it doesn't have to be complete. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think uh, you know, just back to the, the setup for School Sucks was pointing out what these three lessons are, but really not to leave people in that world of this is what school does to people. Doesn't that suck? You know, the obedience, the conformity, and the apathy training. But to move, and, we, and honestly, looking back, we didn't move quickly enough into solutions, but I said before that one of the most valuable things, and there's numerous examples of this across several areas of life, for how to unlearn what was learned, 
as far as countering much of what school teaches, the six pillars of self-esteem that Nathaniel Brandon wrote and we expanded on in, I think, what ultimately turned into 20 hours of content was a really, really helpful set of practices that connect a person to themselves uh, or his or herself. And they are, you know, living consciously, self-acceptance, uh, self-responsibility, assertiveness, living purposefully, and, and living with integrity. So we've all gone through this process, and I think society encourages it in a lot of ways, too. And, and unfortunately, for some people, even the work world encourages it, that, that disconnection from self. This is all about immersion in oneself. So I think that that was one area uh, where, where we looked at this but there were several others as well. I think there's a big challenge when it comes to, uh, to de-schooling today. It, it's not uh, the days of Ivan Ilyich anymore who wrote uh, De-Schooling Society in the early 1970s. We live in a world that is ever increasingly set up to cater to the schools. So I think, and the Six Pillars of Self-Esteem speaks to this very well and aids in this very well, the focus in the de-schooling process needs to be on building self-sufficiency and finding people who are on a similar mission. So it's asking questions like, how do I teach myself? Which we've answered in several series. One that comes to mind was the trivium method of, of learning. How do I organize myself? You know, without uh, the, the organizational structure of a job, if necessary, certainly without the organizational structure of a school, which in many ways is just unnatural uh, when compared to normal human functioning. So we address that in a series uh, called Presence and Productivity, and then we kind of re redid that series or expanded on that series in January of uh, 2015. How do I motivate myself? How do I entertain myself uh, are all really important questions, and uh, one of the ones that we've devoted a lot of time to is how do I heal myself from what actually happened in childhood, uh, of which school was a, a really central part. And I think that those are the, the essential de-schooling questions that people need to start asking themselves. So I have tried to provide content that at least for me and the people that I, that I interviewed or the people in my audience that I listened to were ways of answering those questions. So that self-sufficiency and self-assessment is, is a really key part of engaging in de-schooling. And then from there, it moves on to a series of, I guess, what I would call stoic what-ifs. Uh, one of the, the attributes of, of stoicism, uh, I know Tim Ferriss talks a lot about this on his show, is putting yourself, or at the very least imagining yourself in bad situations and mm -hmm. strategizing how you would actually get out of them. So these are, these are like proactive forms of problem-solving type challenges. Uh, how do I feed myself if this happens? How do I defend myself if this happens? How do I find meaning in my existence if I was, you know, physically incapacitated or put in jail? How do I persevere through X, Y, and Z? So what so are essentially I, mental exercises after you've yeah. cleared your mind of a lot of the, the cloud that has been brought over by school? Right. So I think de-schooling is, you know, a, a looking back process and uh, a looking forward process. And I think there, there's, um, as far as support is concerned in that process, it's okay to uh, use means that are familiar to us. 
uh, that were delivered, you know, through most of our lives by school. Uh, one being accountability and two being measurement. So using what's familiar, but now using what's familiar without force. So accountability is uh, a voluntary kind of accountability instead of a top-down accountability. Finding other people who are on a similar mission, connecting with them, being in a mastermind group, being in a, in a kind of support group towards some, some end, you know, beyond just de-schooling. I mean, you need accountability to be a self-teacher. You need accountability to be an entrepreneur. So connecting with people who are headed in the same direction, who are maybe having some similar challenges, that, that's, that's a really helpful thing. But no one is bearing down on you as it was uh, in school. And measurement, uh, I'm a big fan of the, the quantified uh, self movement. So finding ways to self-assess instead of waiting for uh, like a report card every two and a half months or waiting for somebody to put a, a sticker on something that you did. Those are basically, I, th I think, the questions and, and some of the support strategies that are essential in the de-schooling process. I'm not familiar with the, the quantified self and the self-measurement. Could you just explain that just a little bit more? Oh, sure. And this is mostly something that is delivered today through apps. Like, uh, so if we just pick an area where somebody might be wanting to improve, like, uh, you know, exercise. How many steps do I walk each day? Um, how, many, how many calories am I burning? Um, right. Food tracking, uh, things like that would be uh, self-quantification. And obviously this extends into uh, you know, productivity. I, I had an app that was tracking how much time I spent on different websites. And I would look at it at the end of the month and I learned a lot from doing that and changed some habits because of that. So there is enough of a market for this that uh, you know, pretty much anything that you wanna learn about yourself, somebody will give you or sell you something that will help teach you that the, the best it can. So that's essentially the quantified self movement. And then interesting you bring up market because I keep on thinking that there must be a market for this basket of de-schooling uh, activities and tools, uh, you know, all, all these topics that you talk about on your show. But they're, they're, I, haven't, I guess I don't really see, you, you would know better than anyone, there isn't uh, real too much monetary demand for this. And perhaps the, the hidden market is really in therapy sessions and alcohol right now. Is, is how people are dealing with uh, with their 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 schooling mindset. Yeah, have, have you thought about that at all? Like, like, is there is there a way the market can can bring this to to the mainstream? I, I to the mainstream. Let's let's explore, or at least means. yeah, maybe I guess just the niche. I guess right at this point, the niche of yeah. people who are just just on the edge of being curious to why they. The, the three, you know, they remain apathetic and, and obedient and, and, you know, just frustrated with their, their, their schooled lives. Sure. Well, I am more successful doing that than I ever thought I would be. I started this, uh, this podcast as kind of a, a way to vent, as kind of a personal therapy uh, from my experience working in and around the schools that I would make available to other people and see if they found it useful. I'm I'm happy there's been that much of a market. I really thought that, you know, people who are interested in more freedom, happiness and fulfillment in life would really really embrace this as a central part of that quest. Uh I'm I'm discouraged 
to see people distracted by other things like politics and, and lawmaking as potential answers. So I'm happy that it's as, as popular as it is, but I'm surprised in the conversation of you know, greater self-actualization and greater personal freedom that it isn't more popular. I'm, I'm discouraged that the work of somebody like John Taylor Gatto um, never got more traction, even though, e even within uh, a, a kind of uh, resistance or questioning the status quo type movement, it seems marginalized even inside that movement. People might talk about Gatto with some kind of reverence and say, oh, yeah, that's really important work on school, as if school is just one small subcategory <laughs> in everything that is wrong. Uh, in adult society. I think it's a really, really significant part of it. I, I think that, you know, maybe family dynamics go in that category as well. Uh, but uh, school is inflicted almost uniformly as far as what school is and what happens there. There's tremendous amounts of variety in family systems. School is a, is a uniform imposition on, you know, over 90% of the population in this country and um, it produces a lot of unhappiness, I think. Mm -hmm. So I wish, yes, there was, there was more attention paid to this, but I think we've already you know, articulated some of the reasons why people don't want to do that. People yeah. have all this happen to them. They grow up. A lot of people, even if they never have children and put those children into the schools, they don't see the usefulness of looking backwards. But and, it's part of that disowned you know, self. They can't empathize with themselves, either in the past or in the present now. Exactly. Yeah, I, th I think that's, that's a huge part of it. So school is all about, uh, there, there is no self in school in, in any way that, that's really about um, examination or, or discovering purpose. Uh, there's gestures made towards that. But, it, but at the end of the day, it is do what you're told, it is fit in, and it is, uh, you know, don't think too hard and, or don't go too far outside the box. So for a lot of people, you know, that those uh, exercises of volition, the asserting of individuality, and the embrace of uh, intrinsic motivation, that never really gets a chance to develop in the years of life where it most needs to be fostered and developed. It seemed like to me in recent years that many people were moving away from the big externalities such as politics and focusing on self-improvement and personal performance and personal happiness. Do you see that as a trend going forward or do you see people moving back into this sort of angry political mode? I, I see a lot of things that I'm really not particularly in love with right now. I, I do see a lot of people who are kind of beaten down by the realities of the political process. Um, you know, what was it, eight years ago, the Liberty community rolled out Ron Paul. And, uh, you know, here we are uh, eight years later trying to make a choice between Hillary Clinton and, and Donald Trump uh, to really open uh, authoritarians and, and very undesirable people and we see people so so we see a kind of failure in the the political side of that but at the same time we see lots of liberty-minded people gravitating into the Donald Trump camp as if this is some kind of answer to something and you know on the other hand I see people you know burying 
their heads in the sand uh, about a lot of the, the concerns that Donald Trump has expressed without any real articulation or clarity, uh, but just kind of dismissing them as things Trump says. So there's there seems to be a lot of chaos and confusion in that movement right now, but it does seem that too many people were sucked back into this idea that there's going to be some kind of political answer or or that the political process can at least be used as um, you know a remedy for for some social ills uh, that was really discouraging but I, I think at the same time there there is still a continued interest in um, you know the self-help uh, side of that but uh, there there was too much I, I think I, I was alarmed by how much uh, returning to politics there was over the course of the last year or so. Well, it's funny, you know, we were talking about Brandon earlier in this discussion. He actually has a, a phenomenal talk that he gave, I think, at the LP National Convention sometime in the 80s uh, that's on YouTube titled something like, uh, What Happens When the Libertarian Movement Starts to Win? or something like that. Yeah. And it, it it's very much this this kind of idea that you see in people who are very much tied up in their identity as the person who goes against the grain and then when you have like a whole movement of people who tie their identity <laughs> into going against the grain and they're no longer going against the grain, they're going to self-sabotage. It's a, you're, you're going to see that in any area where they start to succeed, you know, either culturally or on an issue in one area, they're going to turn against themselves, which I, I think that's largely what has been happening in the last couple of years from what I've seen. Yeah, I think that self-knowledge is a really, really important prerequisite for any kind of um, asserting of oneself politically. Uh, I, 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 I totally agree with what you're saying. I'm often, you know, concerned or at the very least curious about why certain people are attracted to any kind of uh, liberty movement. I, I think that that's a really good insight, uh, that it, it might just be a kind of uh, iconoclasm and then yeah. once, uh, w yeah, once that is embraced by more and more people, they'll either attempt to marginalize the movement uh, somewhat unconsciously through their own actions or marginalize themselves from that movement to continue to um, maintain an outsider mentality that I think could help a lot of people explain to themselves uh, a lack of happiness or a lack of fulfillment in life, I, I definitely have seen a lot of that. And I think that that's one of the things that binds a movement together is who do we throw the rocks at? What do we look at? What do we focus on uh, besides ourselves? So it is exactly uh, the, the disowned self, right? It's, it's a lot of otherism. That's kind of what makes uh, the political world go round. Yeah, I guess that is kind of a terrifying uh, value proposition. You know, come come to our group and self-examine yourself. Uh, yeah, I mean, I saw that I saw that firsthand with a, a number of young people who got into liberty stuff at the same time I did, and now they're like Marxists or they're all right, right? <laughs> it, that it's that titty. Yeah, that's really uh, discouraging uh, that you knew people <laughs> who became Marxists. Uh, I'd like to think that's not happening. I mean, the alt-right, I saw plenty of that, but Marxists? 
I, I was, I guess I thought it was going the other way because I uh, listen to School Stocks Project as one of my main podcasts and I hang out with lots of Praxis people. Yeah. And um, all the people that seem to be gravitate towards Praxis are sort of exactly in this, this line where they're just desperate and uh, have this enormous appetite for self-improvement and self-accountability and taking charge of their own their own destinies and their own happiness and it's it's really kind of that 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 really is more encouraging i think when i see that succeeding so well yeah and i wonder and i don't really know the answer how to position people like that because there there is marketing involved in what we're all trying to do here um how to position people like that as a desirable vanguard uh, of actually moving things forward and actually um you know, helping to, as much as we can, heal um, a lot of the ills that we see in society today, because that's what's going to do it. Everything else, I think, is just steps in, in the wrong direction. So there, there is a lot of this happening, and a lot of my discouragement over the course of the last year is that gravity towards praxis or towards self-improvement generally or self-teaching is is drowned out by the massive entertainment value of this world of conflict, right? That, that people have just decided that's where they'd rather um, spend their time and direct their focus. Um, and, and the easiest thing to be is negative, right? The easiest thing to be is a critic. The easiest thing to be is a hater. It is, is very difficult to speak in the uh, affirmative uh, when... You know, you have the option of condemning the other. So if people haven't started down any kind of healing process or, or self-exploration, you can see why condemnation has so much uh, gravity versus uh, self-affirmation or the affirmation of uh, a philosophy or a way of being. It, it, it all makes sense, but it doesn't make it any less discouraging. There's this there's this thing in the background to everything that you've been saying, right? Connecting uh, Gatto's lessons and your lessons to uh, Brandon's six pillars, you know, that obedience brings with it the rejection of self-responsibility, the rejection of personal integrity, the rejection of self-assertiveness, of self-assertiveness, certainly. And it, it's it's easy to say, you know, from our from our podcasting seats where we are, uh, potentially armchairs. Oh, you have to go and you have to work on these six practices. But what are some of the effective things that you have seen either personally, and I realize this is a, a huge topic that you talk hours on, but you know, what's maybe the one thing that you've seen personally, either firsthand or with other people that really helps you get into living those six pillars, living those six practices? Uh, I, this certainly isn't for everybody. So I'm going to, I'm going to expand my one into, uh, like three possible avenues Absolutely. and they're all, they're all very interrelated and I do all three together. I really think that almost everybody out there can benefit at least for a little while from finding a therapist and talking to a therapist, a kind of, uh, active or, or enlightened witness uh, is what Alice Miller, uh, called it. Uh, there's there's means of self-therapy. One of the most useful and helpful that I've ever done is another book by Brandon uh, called The Art of Self-Discovery, which uses his sentence stems where you try to tap into a more unconscious voice. He's given prompt. You're given prompts basically like, um, 
I feel this way. When this happens, I feel... And then you try to write 10 or 12 endings without really, really putting too much thought. And then you kind of engage in a reflection after doing that and a larger reflection after completing a bigger section of the book. And you talk to people that you trust, um, like a support group for this would be great, uh, who, who've also gone through that book. Uh, that's a really helpful thing. I find just journaling generally some kind of active um, reporting to myself, turning thoughts into words, seeing, thing, seeing things that I'm thinking uh, written on a page as a way like to start each day. And I do this as part of a, of a morning routine that is all about living consciously and, and being a good caretaker uh, of myself, um, engaging in self-help and self-nurturing uh, behaviors. Like when my day starts like that every day uh, in that living consciously mindset, those, those other five things will over time, and they, and they require some conscious work as well, but when that setup is there, those other five practices usually follow. There's a reason why living consciously comes first. And, and making a commitment to see what there is, both internally and externally, is, is really, really important. And being in, as far as school is concerned, as we grow into adults, a pro-recovery environment, surrounding ourselves with people who you know, share a lot of the same sentiments about school and, and society, not in a way where it's going to become insular and it's going to be like, yeah, man, everybody else sucks, you know, like that's not what you want. Uh, you want a support system uh, for, for self-examination and self-improvement without otherism or without condemnation and, and, and negativity, because that's a, that's a very, very easy thing to get sucked into. I've you know, moved in a lot of, uh, you know, anti-school and libertarian circles where most of the conversation was just about uh, how bad or how unenlightened everyone who isn't in this circle actually is. So I, I think of it as pro-growth, pro-recovery uh, environments are, are really, really important, but a majority of that work has to be initiated, you know, by by the person who has recognized that these problems exist, uh, who has been willing to admit to themselves what the causes were, even if even if they are, happen to be a parent imposing the school system or maybe a lot of the same mistakes on their children, and um, you know moving from there. So I, I think that those are some some really really helpful strategies. In addition to reading the book itself and and connecting with other people who've who've read the book, and I highly recommend the podcast that Wes Bertrand and I did on the six pillars of uh, self-esteem and a separate series we did called the seventh pillar of self-esteem as a, as a starting point. But, you know, whatever the practice of conscious living on a daily basis means to an individual is something worth trying to make a habit of. Thank you for joining us. You can share this podcast and learn more by going to www.deschoolyourself.com. You may promote this series by rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Host Zachary Slayback is the author of the book, The End of School. Jeffrey Till is the author of the book, Rise Above School. Both are available in hard copy and Kindle at Amazon.com.